What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's the middle of January, and it already feels like a long year. We've had to make sacrifices for the pandemic, but we're still carrying on, making the best of it, largely supported by unsung heroes. And that is what Tracy Enerson Wood writes about in her book, The Engineer's Wife. Tracy joins us today to talk about the story of Emily Warren Roebling. She was married to Washington Roebling, second-generation bridge engineer and designer of the Brooklyn Bridge, which opened in 1883. Emily de facto took over the engineering of the bridge when her husband became incapacitated by Quezon's disease, otherwise known as decompression sickness. It's gained from lowering the caissons or the closed vestal, vessels into the water down to the seabed to build the pilings and structural elements for the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a book of courage and faith, the power behind the throne, losing one's identity, and reclaiming it in the end. Welcome, Tracy. Glad to have you here with us. Thank you, Diane. So nice to be with you today. There's so much to unpack in The Engineer's Wife. It is the story of the Brooklyn Bridge. And for many of us, that's one of the most romantic bridges in the country, um, along with the Golden Gate. It holds a storied past, and it has always personal anecdotes as well as a broader history. And in your book, there's so much twinning of old and new fiction and nonfiction. Um, the story hews closely to history, but then there's a whole disclosure at the end about what was from your fantasy and what was from the history books. Um, and then there's the intimate story, the love story, and the large scale, the long-term versus short-term, the individual Emily and Wash versus their partnership, feminism, and old school fealty. All of this good love stories involve waiting, and this one was no exception. I just was fascinated by all these dualities in the book and um, spent my time wondering how you were drawn to this kind of perspective of a very subtle, nuanced perspective versus being just on the nose with one idea and rather pedantic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, the, the story really captured me for many reasons, many of which you, you've uh, sort of outlined, but because it's a story of Emily uh, Rogling, who did just amazing things, amazing, they'd be amazing now, never mind back in the 1800s when she wasn't even, uh, women weren't even allowed to, to work. So I was just fascinated with the story that has basically uh, buried in, in history. Very few people know this story, and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to explore it. But it was a, a complex story. You have the, 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 you have to understand a bit about the engineering of the bridge to understand the story. So there was that part of it. There was the love story and the historical fact that the chief engineer, Washington Mobley, left for three years during critical time of the construction and left his wife there to uh, basically deal with it and was managing by mail, uh, snail mail as we'd call it now. So there was that aspect to it. There was also the multi-generational part of it that is what originally attracted me to the story in that John Roebling was the, was the dreamer, was 
the one who designed the bridge in the, in the first time it was his his brainchild, and then it was passed down to his son, Washington, and then further along to Washington's wife. So that is the part that really sort of um, attracted me in the first place, because what I had set out to do was to write a multi-generational story. I wanted to write about a family that shared a passion, a very deep passion, but a passion that was also quite dangerous because therein lied the, the, the part I wanted to really explore. What happens if you have a family passion, something you, you, your occupation, your business that you hand down from generation to generation, yet that very thing may injure you, may kill you. And how, how do you go about those family dynamics. And I can talk a little bit about why I was fascinated with that, but uh, hopefully that answers your question. Well, we will get back to why you were fascinated by that, but it is fascinating for sure. Uh, Something like 20 people, men, um, lost their lives in the building of the bridge. I think it's a bridge that we look at now crossing the East River and um, maybe are curious about, but don't know the story behind it. I think you've done a great service by bringing this story out. Um, at the time, it was the first bridge that crossed from Manhattan um, over the East River. The President of the United States attended the opening. P.T. Barnum um, was another character, a peripheral character in this. Uh, not always, sometimes he was central. Um, He had a parade of elephants that walked across the bridge on the inauguration of it. Um, But yes, this dynamic of an intergenerational family, a family passion, where through thick and thin, you have to stick together to get your goals accomplished to build these bridges. And there's something very symbolic about a bridge. Um, But it came at great sacrifice, right, Tracy? I mean, talk to us a little bit about that aspect. Oh, for sure. Uh, I'm just amazed at the family and what they gave up, what they risked. Basically, they risked their own family. They they risked themselves to to build this dream. And... uh, I don't think they ever really looked back. It was something they they took on as their mission, and it was going to happen, heck or high water. Uh, that was uh, just the, the goal. And from my research, I know that um, that passion, that drive, isn't uh, unusual in this family. Uh, John Roebling has several inventions. He actually invited, invented uh, steel wire, wire rope that is... Mm-hmm. Still today, used in many, many applications besides bridges and elevators and lots of things. And, and uh, he was a, a brilliant man and uh, just very, very compassionate and uh, apparently kind of hard to, to live with, <laughs> if you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just was fascinated by not only the, the bridge, the, the iconic bridge, but this uh, amazing family that, that stood behind it and sacrificed everything, even each other. And uh, I, I think, obviously, Washington and Emily's marriage you know, took a, a great toll there. Um, I took some liberties in trying to imagine what they were going through because, of course, that's not all documented, but you you have to believe, you have to, to know how difficult that would have would have been for them. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that we have anything quite the same in, in modern day to, to compare it to. I agree. And I think strength of character-wise, um, you know, we, we have not got this. They, they endured sacrifices such as, yes, three years of separation, but also the effects of the caisson's disease. It's a neurological, it's, it's the equivalent of, you know, what we think of as divers having the bends and decompressing um, from being in high pressure situations where, um, you know, below sea level. So, you know, it's, it's a, it, it affects, as you say, we don't know the gory details, but it affects many, you know, areas of the brain, motor coordination, um, and we don't know what other vital organs, um, you know, that would have affected the marriage as well. 
Um, I do think it's fascinating um, what you say about this level of commitment, this determination, this passion. I was thinking somehow also about, um, you know, how how easily things come to us now and how quick we are to bail out, um, you know, when the marriage gets rough and, or, you know, and, or temptation strikes where, you know, P.T. Barnum, easily one of the most, you know, charismatic figures of the day, he's circling the wagons because here's Emily Roebling and she's on her own and she's, you know, in effect, building the bridge on her, on her husband's, uh, you know, instructions. But, you know, she's isolated. She's lonely. She is experiencing great loneliness. She has a child um, that also at one point went with uh, Washington Roebling out to Trenton. Their other That was the family home where he went to recuperate. And, you know, she, there were so many times when she came like this close to, to kind of making it with P.T. Barnum, who of course, calls her Peanut because he was the person who first um, made widespread the the eating of peanuts. Why? Because he had elephants in the circus. Um, you know, we can take from that what what we what we will. But you know, I just think you're I think you're really on to something here in terms of the depth of of this commitment and what it must have been like for you to be knee deep in research. And I wondered if you remember even the moment when it sparked and you just said, no, I have to write this story. Was there a particular moment? There, there actually was. It was uh, I was actually researching the, the concept I had talked about before. Uh, I was looking for a family that had an occupation that was dangerous and it was passed down through the generations. And my plan was to write a play on this. And uh, as I grew up in northern New Jersey and uh, New York City was sort of the was our Oz, I guess. And uh, I was always fascinated with the, the, the skyscrapers and, and the building, especially the building that happened around the, the 1930s or so when they were when they built the Empire State Building and several other skyscrapers. So what I was thinking is, was what a, a terrible dark age that was. And I had seen photographs of the, of the, the men sitting up on the, the I-beams, 100 stories in the air, just sort of swinging their legs and eating a ham sandwich. So my imagination was, I'm going to write a story about this architect or this family of builders, and they're, they're up there in these girders, and the son's got to uh, go out there, and, and maybe he's a little afraid, and the father says, ah, go out there, you know, tip off the old block kind of thing. So anyway, that's the family I was looking for. And I was uh, just researching different families and occupations, and I could not find an intergenerational family that had worked on the skyscrapers in New York City during the Depression. But then I found out about the Roeblings, you know, first read about John Roebling, who I'd heard the name, but really didn't know the story at all, and uh, and then read further and like, what, he he. You know, he, he died before the, the construction really even began, and then his son took over, and then his and then once I found out Emily's role in building the bridge, this this woman who had no training in engineering, yet I have no doubt if it weren't for her, it would not have been done, at least not in any kind of a timely manner, if if at all. Once I found out about Emily Warren Roebling, that was it. That was the moment I knew I absolutely had to write her story. Mm -hmm. Well, you did it in compelling fashion. And um, we're going to take a look at what those um, actually innate feminine traits are that lead women actually to be not bad engineers um, once applied. It's not been an accepted profession, but, you know, it can take you in a lot of different directions. Um, the Brooklyn Bridge, I, I just I just have to think that, you know, there's also, it's just, you know, when you say about Oz, and I can so relate to that, you know, coming up on the Manhattan skyline or any gigantic skyline, Chicago, LA, you know, it is like Oz. Um, and here you have Paul Goldberger, the New York Times architecture critic on the Brooklyn Bridge saying, it is everything we could want in a monument the scale, um, the Gothic arches, um, but it also has 
a human scale with public walkways. And part of the romance of this bridge is that human beings cross it every day on their bicycles, on foot. Romances have occurred. Um, I dare say romances have been culminated. Um, A lot (laughs) of personal um, memory goes into this bridge. Why? Because it's not like the Verrazano Bridge where only cars and trucks can race through. It's a place where people can walk. And it's been done many times during blackouts, you know, when the trains weren't running. Um, you know, there are all kinds of times that people remember the first time they walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. And I think that there is something interesting about this personal experience on a gigantically scaled project. How many people worked on the project altogether, Tracy? Do you recall that? Uh, I don't know the exact number, and I don't think actually anybody does know. I mean, it's certainly in the hundreds. Uh, mm-hmm. We also don't actually know how many people died because some of the workers who got to the bins, uh, as we know, now know it, they sort of, you know, okay, well, can't work anymore, and they just sort of faded away, and they weren't actually counted real well. So we believe the deaths were in, you know, several dozen, somewhere between 20 and, and 40. Um, the highest I've looked at is, is 50, but that's, that's probably overstating a little bit. But, yeah, probably about 20 or, I'd say, let's say 30, pick a number in the mm-hmm. middle, died, and several hundred worked on it. And there again is pointing to the sacrifice. We actually have to pause to take a commercial break. But when we come back, we'll dive into um, Ken Burns made his first documentary on the Brooklyn Bridge and was broadcast on PBS, was nominated for an Academy Award in 1982, about 100 years later. And there was a public and personal response to this. We'll find out more about that resonance when we come back on Dropping In with Tracy Anderson Wood. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking about the history, personal and grand, of the Brooklyn Bridge with Tracy Anderson Wood, who has written a novel, the first of its kind, about Emily uh, Roebling, who was the wife of Washington Roebling, who was the engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge. His father was the initiator um, of the design, and he d- he died from injuries sustained on the bridge, correct, uh, Tracy? Because he had tetanus, isn't that correct? That's correct. What happened was he was out surveying for the bridge. They hadn't started construction yet, and uh, he, uh, ironically, he was hit by the ferry that he was planning to replace with a bridge. He was uh, hit by the, the ferry as it pulled into the pier, and it crushed his foot, and he uh, did not, uh, he, he pretty much denied any care, not that they 
may have been able to save him anyway, uh, but he denied care and then, yes, died of tetanus uh, some weeks later. Undaunted, then was Washington Roebling taking over, um, executing the plans, and then he himself contracts caisson's disease then is kind of put out of commission, except that he's able to communicate his design ideas to his wife, Emily. And she, in fact, is then on the hot seat and makes a couple of really um, executive decisions herself concerning the depth that the caissons would descend. She argues that it doesn't need to go into the riverbed as deeply. It wouldn't be as dangerous for the men. So she stopped at like 78 feet. If you can imagine being 78 feet under, it's really quite a harrowing thing. And as you say, the multi-generational family saga of facing this kind of danger. I mean, it's sort of like the Jacques Cousteau's or, you know, it's um, it, it, there's really just a sense of why, you know, if you were Emily Roebling, why you wouldn't say, hmm, two men down in the family, I'm in line. And rather than shirk, she steps up to the plate. Um, it turns out that there's a lot of really interesting um, innate analytical and logistical skills that women sort of normally possess in running families and houses. Um, what, do, what do you make of that, Tracy? As an author, when you were reading about the plans for the bridge and how it was built, it seems to me that you got fully absorbed in it. I learned a lot from reading your book, The Engineer's Wife. Did you resonate with the you know, logistical engineering aspect as well? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I wish I had a degree in engineering <laughs> because, yes, I, I had to learn a lot. I had a fairly steep learning curve. I mean, I've, I've taken uh, sciences, obviously, in, in college, but uh, as I was a nurse, I took mostly life sciences. So the, the uh, engineering aspect of it both fascinated and sort of uh, terrified me because I was uh, afraid of really getting it wrong and, and uh, imagining, you know, real engineers reading this and say I had to get things wrong. So I, I adhered pretty closely to, uh, to documentation and tried to keep it simple. I, it, it's obviously much more complex than I could put in a novel, but I, and I don't want to say I dumbed it down, but I, I tried to keep it at a level that I knew, you know, I could in, understand well and that my readers would as well. So it was, uh, it was quite the, the challenge. But luckily for me, there are lots of diagrams and lots of descriptions of the, the most important things. And I wanted to concentrate on the aspects that would have more of a, a human dynamic, the, the places where Emily would have to make important decisions, for example, or controversial things rather than, or, or, you know, maybe exciting times like when the first wire went up or when mm-hmm. uh, someone rode the wire across the river to, to prove uh, that that was Farrington, that uh, to, to prove its, its safety and the first ride across it and, uh, and some of the dangerous things that happened uh, in the caissons and then also in the towers. So those are the bits and pieces where I had to go into depth and understand what was going on so I could relate it in, in a real way. But, you know, I, I certainly you know, didn't, <laughs> didn't become an engineer, <laughs> but it gave me a great appreciation for them. Absolutely. And it's relatable. I mean, the amount, the information, you know, when this wire is going through the hands of Farrington and then there's a whiplash moment where it actually slips. And, you know, all, all of this tension um, had to have been going on in incrementally, you know, in, in during the days and weeks of building this bridge. I will never be able to look at it in the same way again. Um, I've gained so much appreciation for it through your book, The Engineer's Wife. And it was, as you say, compelling for the personal story. And oddly, as I mentioned, Ken Burns did his first documentary on the Brooklyn Bridge uh, in 1982, 100 years after it was built. Um, and he said, you know, the the public response to the story he had told 
Um, he remembered back to his college days that they debated endlessly whether films had any impact on people's lives, whether they really ever made people do anything. But after the documentary first appeared, uh, the New York Times ran a front page photograph of a married couple and their children walking over the Brooklyn Bridge. And they said they were from Idaho and they traveled all the way to New York so their family could see firsthand this remarkable structure. They said they got the idea after watching a film on PBS. Um, to me, building the Brooklyn, the, the building of the Brooklyn Bridge is still one of the most dramatic stories in all of American history. And still people just have the desire to take a simple walk across. It's, it's almost as though you can feel the history, the palpable history, um, the closer you are to it. And I think I wonder if you, you know, had feedback that as a result of your book, that people had more awareness, maybe future generations, millennials, um, younger people who might not be aware of this history. Had you realized yes. any of the, yes. yes? Yes, actually, one of my favorite responses I've been getting is uh, mostly women, but some of them taking an interest in this and saying they, they had no idea of the, the story behind it. And, you know, they, you know, without exception, they've always heard the bridge, they've seen pictures of the bridge, but when I, I hear how amazed they are about learning of its story, and many of them saying, now I know I have to go visit the bridge, or I, I had a, a young girl talk about, uh, she was thinking about possibly engineering, and it, it's still, to this day, a bit tough, I guess, uh, for women in the, the field of engineering. And, and she, that was a very short message, but she said she felt it inspired to, to go on. So those kind of things, you know, just keep you going. And, and of course, I, I know there's probably many more out there that I'll never hear from, but, I, you know, it is my hope and my dream that there will be young women inspired, that there will be old people that want to walk across the bridge and, and feel its stones and wires and, and just feel the connection with the, the past, with uh, something that is so American. The, just the strength and beauty of it is amazing uh, across generations, across races, across countries. Uh, to me, it is just that most wonderful of, of monuments. Mm -hmm. I agree. And the fact that you can get so close to it and it becomes so tangible, you know, almost everyone, you know, people re remember the first time they were on top of the Empire State Building, crossing the, you know, Brooklyn Bridge, maybe going to the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it's an iconic moment and it's a prolonged moment because it's a whole experience, one that you've amplified through the telling of this story. Um, and, you know, I think it would be delightful to think that um, young female engineers would be encouraged by um, by this story. You know, the, this Marguerite Rue Walt, who said the world needs scientists and engineers. And if a brain is qualified to do such work, it should be encouraged, not smothered because it's a female brain. This was actually a recent quote. So, you know, STEM mm -hmm. is still, um, you know, an area where young girls need support to develop their skills. But, um, hey, look, you know, the other thing the Roeblings did was um, to start create to create bloomers so that so that Emily didn't have to keep wearing her ginormous circle skirts um, down into the caissons, right? I mean, this was also really fun, and they did it as a partnership, right? Yes, well, that actually, I will have to say, was imagined. I haven't read historically that uh, she wore bloomer, bloomers on the site, but I figured she, she must have because <laughs> it was dank and, and dirty and climbing around, and I couldn't imagine how she would keep her skirts clean. And I know that she was, in fact, an excellent uh uh, equestrian, and that she would have been used to, uh, you know, wearing the, the clothes they were allowed for that, and that, you know, probably she would have been one. This was, you know, exactly in the era where they were uh, experimenting with uh, pants for women, to, that we call them now, but obviously that wasn't allowed. Uh, so I 
put that in the story. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's what she would have done. <laughs> I, I think so. I think you inhabited her character correctly. You know, it's really, it's interesting because she was, um, she, she was a sort of an involuntary, she was a suffragette, but she was an involuntary hero in that she, you know, when her husband um, was sidelined, she became involved in the engineering. It wasn't um, necessarily her singular honor. It was one that she shared, right, with her predecessor, with her husband and his his father. And it's something of a story of being behind the scenes as well, whether you're in bloomers or not, um, we can, you know, imagine. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that you've raised um, the story of a heroine who did step uh, from behind the scenes. She was ultimately recognized for her achievements, was she not? Yes, she was. Um, for example, uh, there's a, a, a small piece of the, the speech that Abram Hewitt did at the uh, at the opening, and he did recognize her and also praised uh, education for women, which was a huge thing. And uh, I'm, you know, and Emily in, in in my book, of course, is is very honored, and and that's probably like the favorite thing ever, you know, that like, well, I did accomplish something because maybe I've, I've changed the role for women. Uh, but it, as far as her, you know, being in the background and, and doing all she did, I, I don't think it was her first choice. I, I think she would have just reading her letters, especially her letters to her son, John, that she never thought the limelight. She, you know, she was a behind the scenes kind of person. She, you know, and, and that's the way women operated a lot. You know, they got things done, but they got it through convincing the men or uh, through their money as, uh, as her social circle did. But I, I, she never did it for herself. And I'm sure uh, that she tried to push it off on the, you know, other uh, senior engineers like CC Martin, for example. And, but I think it was, was Wash, who was like the, the the quote you you mentioned, thought that she had the brain, knew that she had the brain to understand it because you know, remember they did the, the Cincinnati Bridge, basically you know they were living together mm-hmm. in a tiny little place and they were newlyweds and she would have you know at that time hung on his every word. So he knew that she had an attitude for that, and I think Wash would have really pushed her to do it. Now it's not really written down in their their letters, but just from kind of reading between the lines, I think that that was really the, the, the push, that he wanted her to do that. He gave her the confidence to do it. And she, he didn't give her a lot of choice in the matter sometimes because he refused to see anybody. Uh, he, you know, for in the years before he went back to Trenton, he basically stayed up in his bedroom when people came by, he would not, not in the book, and that's absolute historical fact, he wouldn't talk to them. So, mm-hmm. it's so facto, she kind of had to. What, what else she going to do? She couldn't have the engineers come in and talk directly. She she had to get in the middle of it. And once you're in the middle of it, you know, you're in the middle of it. And uh, and she yeah. was fading for, for many of those years. He did recover, um, and his mind was pretty much sharp, but he had some episodes that nearly killed him. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, I think those were the times where she just sort of, you know, buckle up buttercup and, yeah. and went, went on. You know, I think the other thing that um, it was fraught uh, with for her is that she did develop a public persona. She did wield power. She wielded considerable um, leadership, but internally she was suffering because of the loneliness uh, within a marriage. And being lonely in a marriage is unlike any other form of loneliness. It's lonelier than many other forms of loneliness. Um, One person described it as um, a void that you cannot cross um, and I, or a dark void that you cannot cross. And I thought to myself, it's so interesting that the bridge metaphor kind of does cross this um, void. And she was sorely tempted. Emily Warren Roebling had the affections and attention of P.T. Barnum. She may have had others as well. 
And this internal conflict that um, she had to resolve was maybe even a deeper one than the external having to assume authority when you're really um, reticent about it. But we are going to take a commercial break now. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happened in terms of the actual keeping the skirts clean of Emily Warren Roebling, how that dynamic worked out. And don't go away. We'll be right back with more on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with author Tracy Anderson Wood, who's written a novel, The Engineer's Wife, and another upcoming novel, The Army Nurse. Tracy, you're cultivating, uh, I think, a series of iconic women, women who maybe had to step from the shadows, um, who were unsung heroes, but emerge as true heroes, heroines. I do think there was a toll here for Emily Warren Roebling in the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. She was enormously lonely. Her husband basically decamped to Trenton outside of New York City. She was stuck with a job. She rose to the occasion in spades, but inside she was depressed. She, uh, she longed, let's say she longed for intimate companionship. Um, it had been three years since she'd been with her husband in that way. She was courted. Um, she was an attractive woman. I've, I've looked at her photographs. Um, and she was courted by none other than P.T. Barnum, a larger-than-life character, if ever there was one. As much as there's a sacrifice for something bigger than ourselves, she really was challenged by this, wasn't she? Oh, I think so. And and if you read some of the letters, especially the letters to her son, John, you can just feel her frustration and loneliness. She wrote to him and uh, her her son in at one point was said and I'm going to loosely quote her saying that you know your father do, will do nothing he, he he is just beyond beyond me I can't reach him those kind of things just, you know during one of the very very dark phases and you know that had to be just crushing and uh, to read the early love letters between. Emily and Washington, you would know how much they were in love, how very close they were. Uh, just their their silly jokes with each other and their their playfulness, and uh, it it was truly truly a, a love story, a, a very loving marriage. And then to have the, his illness, his um, his condition, basically come between them, and and then also, of course, the building. Of, of the bridge falling on on her with him being sort of this cranky guy, you know, uh, 
back up, locked up in his bedroom, issuing orders. That had to be very tough. And she, and she didn't have the, the training for it, and she was taking just daily grief from everybody she worked with uh, because she was unqualified. And, and uh, so it had been just very, very stressful. And and mm-hmm. I would think that she would want an outlet, you know, to, to be able to, to go out into society and just sort of have fun. But she was also being harassed in 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 the press and in society, and uh, you know, just sort of heckled on the, the streets in some some cases, and not able to to follow her real goal, which in her mind was to to uh, join the or lead maybe even the suffrage uh, movement. So you know, a lot a lot of frustration. You know, you you you've got to think there were temptations out there, um, the actual love story between her, or not really love story, but the uh, relationship between P.T. and her is, is largely imagined because much of that is erased from history, even though mm-hmm. there's uh, lots of historical documentation that uh, they had to have worked together in uh, a number of ways, and he moved very close to her. <laughs> uh, um. And, you know, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but it's basically been erased, and I think there's good reason for it to be erased, because that's what they did back then. They paid off the papers and stuff not to report those kind of things. But, you know, uh, her everyday life must have been just very, very, very difficult. And uh, like you said, she, she rose to the occasion uh, in in spades, and and that's why I, I, I think that she's an, an amazing role model to, to mm-hmm. people now to, you know, not give in so easily. And uh, you can be yourself and yet uh, push yourself, encourage yourself to, you know, whatever the dream is, whatever you want to do, just, you know, push and work to, to get to it. Don't give up so easy. It's part of a fabric of a marriage, too, that you're preserving. You know, you know that once it's pierced, you can't mend it. Um, and even, and you know, it's it, she was trying to maintain a stiff upper lip. Meanwhile, you know, P.T. Barnum is courting her with flowers and, you know, chimpanzee acts and then going to the circus and, and seeing the high wire acts. And, you know, all of it's dazzling and stimulating and interesting beyond, you know, the green gritty grime of going down into these caissons and and working on this bridge, which, you know, physically she had to make site visits. And, you know, she was attracted and lured. I think that's a very viable um, storyline to have played into. Also, I think, you know, this, this idea of loneliness, who are you going to talk to about that? You know, you can't really say it to anybody. I'm lonely inside my marriage. It's hard enough to do now, let alone then. Um, she, she, was, she was a fairly privileged woman. She, you know, had this position. Um, she was, a, you know, very Victorian kind of times. You you couldn't say anything scandalous or be caught unchaperoned somewhere. And it's still shameful to acknowledge that you're lonely if you're married. It means you're doing something wrong. It means something wrong has happened. Um, you know, there's kind of um, blame, uh, you know, blame, shame kind of. And yet, you know, I think, you know, she, she did finally talk to someone about it and she had her mother, which was also a support. But I, I think what you're talking about, the perseverance and the idea of maintaining the integrity of a relationship versus caving in because you're having all of these issues, um, maybe you do, maybe it is character building. Maybe it does make us stronger. Um, you know, you can say, well, martyrdom is so played out, but, you know, maybe it's not. Um, if it's for a worthy cause and her purpose, you know, was a worthy purpose. Um, all of us have to learn what our purpose is and what sacrifices we're willing to make. I wonder if your military background and you've moved place to place. I've met you in Stuttgart one time and um, you've since moved back to the States. But I wondered if you had firsthand experience with those kinds of emotional states that it takes to persevere until you're actually reunited and can be together again with your husband. Uh, well, yeah, I think that, that is true. Uh, Diane, and 
Uh, thanks for remembering that. My husband was in the Army for 27 years, and we moved, uh, lost count, but it was over 20 times. And uh, so, you know, over and over again, getting into a, a new town, a new base, a new circle of friends, new job, that, that of course, is challenging. But even more challenging probably was the, the absences of my husband, he, you know, uh, it's, there, it's just a training thing. They're gone for three, four weeks, and, you know, that actually can be not too bad because, you know, you plan to do some things maybe with the, with the kids that, um, you know, you wouldn't do otherwise, and so you sort of use that time to, to have special time with, with the kids or with the, my side of the family, for example. But there were times where they would leave on very little notice, and, um they were gone within a few hours, and you didn't know where they were going or when they were coming back. And that was the hard part. If mm-hmm. you know where they are and you don't know when, how long they'll be gone, you can plan for it. But the most difficult thing is to not know when they're coming back, what to tell the kids, how to plan. Do you plan a vacation? Do you do you stay where you're living? Do you move on to where you think your next place is? I mean, it's the, the nebulousness that I found the most challenging of the, the sort of military life. And, and I imagine that would have been true for Emily as, as well. She didn't know if, uh, you know, she, they're going to wake up that one morning and, and Wash should be able to, you know, to walk well again, you know, that he, he sort of snap out of his, his funk and, uh, because, Kason's disease was like that. He, you know, he'd have good days and, and bad days, and she didn't know whether, okay, and, and I think probably she hoped and believed that the whole time that he was going to come back and be fully involved in the bridge and and uh, be the, the chief engineer that he was, and, and I think that's why she kept on, like, he's coming back, you know, I'm just kind of filling in. Uh, but then he, he never really never really did. Uh, I, I read that he set foot on the, the Manhattan Tower, I think, one time in the entire time it was being built. So mm. I, I imagine at that time, that was, of course, the second tower to be built, and then by the time the wires are going across, she probably realized that, you know, that this was, this was it. <laughs> you know, this, mm-hmm. this is the way it's going to be. But I, I tried to sort of summarize those feelings of working through a marriage that was so challenged. And I tried to summarize that in the scene on Coney Island Beach with, with Eleanor when Eleanor is telling her that, you know, you, you got to get through the breakers, the breakers of a marriage, basically. And, and there's calm, calm waters out there, uh, but you've got to find each other. And that, to me, was sort of an analogy for the marriage that she was experiencing, and and uh, I'm, I'm hoping maybe people can can see that and apply it to their own relationships that get through the tough parts, get through them together. Uh, yes. If you can't get them side by side, then find each other on the other end, and mm-hmm. and and work, keep swimming, keep swimming. I I honestly I thought it was one of the major takeaways of the book. It really for me struck a chord. Um, having the idea of accepting what is versus what you thought a marriage was or some fairy tale concept of it. I think you're very grounded in reality. And I think that you also spoke to this interior life in a very sensitive and compelling way. Um, I'm not at all surprised that um, it came from a kind of a firsthand view and um, feelings of your own. I think that it really, for me, I, I just think that, you know, having lived through the scandal of, say, Sarah Ferguson getting her toes sucked by her accountant in Great Britain when, you know, Andrew went off to the Air Force or the Navy or whatever, I mean, she couldn't even make it through four months or something without getting involved with, you know, somebody. And you do have to wonder about, like, the immediate gratification um, versus the idea of can we possibly work for something long term? You know, are our you know attention spans just so truncated that we can't even quite make it to, to 
to think, you know, mm-hmm. long term, what what am I really here for? What am I, you know, at at root, you know, this love that I have or that Emily had with Wash, I mean, it was profound. And in the end, if you're working together on a project of this magnitude or just on life itself is difficult enough um, with kids, with COVID, with educating at home, um, everything, you know, it's a challenge. But hey, you know, if we throw up our hands in the middle of it, then, you know, we've lost and it's won, um, whatever it is. So um, I, I do think that, you know, you, you've you made a case for soldiering on and I think it's actually um, very true. Uh, I also think that, you know, you've done a wonderful job of honoring soldiers and war veterans um, with another book that I know of from you, Homefront Cooking, the proceeds of which went to support veterans Um, And I think that you, you know, it seems as though you have an affinity for some of the more overlooked segments in our society. Do you, does that feel right to you? I mean, that the military has been not accorded always the honor that it should have. Oh, yeah, I think, I mean, it's less than 2% of our population, I think, that's ever been military attached to the military. Uh, And it's, you're not in it. It is very difficult to understand the, the life. I mean, I, I wasn't even active duty myself, but at least I, I had a view of it. And I saw how much our service members sacrificed their, their dedication. Their, you know, I, I, I would just look at my husband at, you know, 4.30 in the morning, strapping on his his boots and, you know, cause he had to do PT before the workday started like seven and, and I would just like pull up the covers and <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. you, you go for it, honey. Uh, but they work so extremely hard and they're so dedicated yes. and, and they don't ask for any thanks at all. They ask for very little. And so that population has always been very dear to my heart. And uh, with home front cooking, thank you for looking at it. I I felt that I, you know, I I could give back a little bit. It was not only about raising money to to go for veterans. It was also about preserving their stories. And, uh, and I wanted to center it about food. And I I went to veterans and say, you know, what, what's a, a, a favorite recipe that you share, yes. you know, something it's that means something true. to you. And, and I felt those stories were getting lost. And so that's why I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. The personal stories are the best. Tracy Anderson Wood, it's been delightful having you with us, interweaving the personal and the historical and the unsung heroes, which we must remember in this time of the pandemic. Good luck with the next book. We'll be back to you on that. Um, thank you to Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, our engineers, to Robert Cialino, our executive producer. Most of all, thanks to our listeners. Stay safe out there. And remember to keep building bridges. Till next week, thanks for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.